0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the JedCast Dialogues with Changemakers. I am your host, Jed Liano, Mayor for the City of Claremont, and with me as always is my co-host, Dr. Audrey Jordan. Audrey, how are you? Hello, Jed, and
1: hello everybody out there. I'm Audrey Jordan. I'm the Jerry D. Campbell Professor and Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Specialist at Claremont Lincoln University. And Jed, I am so glad to be here with you today for this conversation with Charles Brown.
0: That's right. Today we got with us Charles Brown, CEO of Equitable Cities and professor at Rutgers, my law school alma mater. And he is here to talk about arrested mobility, the fundamental examination and study of the fact that through policy, people of color are prohibited from moving about freely. It is a really interesting topic that I got introduced to when we were at SCAG, when I was serving with Rex Richardson on the Committee for Equity and Social Justice. But so many layers to this, so many which ways we can go in this conversation. Audrey, what are you looking forward to hearing today?
1: Yeah, Jed, this concept of arrested mobility is powerful. And I really want to hear Charles Brown unpack it and help us understand how it manifests and the ways in which we can attack it, change it, and really, really see that he has some very important instruction and inspiration for us all.
0: You know, the thing is, when I think about what we're doing at Claremont Lincoln, which is educating the next generation of change makers with a very targeted and intentional focus On diversity, equity, and inclusion. We can't do that without studying and understanding basic infrastructure, basic enforcement of laws, and how do these infrastructure and enforcement concepts impact communities of color? And what better person to discuss that than the guy who wrote the book on it, Charles Brown. So glad you are with us today, whether you are in the car, on the train, on the bus, at work, walking your dog, coming up soon Charles Brown talking about Arrested Mobility. Okay, and now to join us on the podcast today is Charles Brown, Professor Rutgers and CEO at Equitable Cities. Charles, how are you today?
2: I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me here.
0: It's my pleasure. You know, Charles, the first time we met was at SCAG. We were talking about conversations of equity around planning. And that's how I got to know you and your work. And my very first introduction to you was around the topic of arrested mobility, which I think is absolutely fascinating. If you can give the listeners the the 60-second snapshot, what does arrested mobility
2: mean? Arrested mobility, as I assert, is this belief that Black people and other minorities have been historically and presently denied by both legal and illegal authority, this inalienable right to move, to be moved, or to simply exist in public space. It is a radical sort of redefining of what it means to police. And so and Mobility asserts that through the aggregation of three Ps, policy, polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y, and then policing, These three things work together to limit the mobility of Black people, their physical mobility directly, and their social or upward mobility indirectly.
0: You mentioned the three Ps, and let's get right to the policy piece. So historically, give me some examples in policy where access to transportation and the ability to move about freely has been denied to people of color.
2: So when you look at policy, I think first and foremost, you have to look at racist land use and zoning practices, which has led to racial residential segregation across the country. I think you have to look at jaywalking laws. You even look um, at the need for cyclists, for instance, to have a license for their bicycle or to register their bicycle. Those are some ways in which you see Arrested mobility manifesto policy.
0: You know, you went right to the housing policy component and the segregation of residential communities. Admittedly, I have no problem saying this. I am a huge Twitter fan of yours, love all of your content, everything you drop. Is the problem getting worse?
2: That's a great question. I don't have the research before me to answer that uh, directly. What I will say is that we are seeing it more often due to, of course, cameras. We're seeing it more often due to the fact that we live in a post George Floyd society, a post Breonna Taylor society. So more and more people I think are aware. And for that reason, more and more people are courageous enough to videotape or record what is happening. So it feels like it's happening much more often than it probably has previously. But I think things are probably somewhere closer to where they've always been.
0: So you mentioned the, the basic inability or the lack of freedom to move about and be in public. Does this happen mostly in cities? Is this a concentrated issue or problem? Is it spread out? Where is this happening?
2: It's happening all over America. It's not necessarily where it's happening. Is to whom it's happening to. And what I find that it happens disproportionately to black people, followed by other racialized minority groups, such as, of course, Native Americans and then Hispanic, Latinos, and then our Asian brothers and sisters there. But it happens all over America. Does it happen more so in cities than in rural environments? I think it depends on uh, which part of the country we're talking about. So I would say. Focus on not where it happens, but who it happens to. And that's the focus of rest of mobility.
0: The ability to have mobility, the ability to access transit is fundamentally predicated on infrastructure. You can't get about unless there are adequate infrastructure to facilitate that. The way that we allocate resources for transportation infrastructure right now, Does that system in and of itself have bias embedded in it? And how does that manifest itself?
2: Absolutely. So there is the bias in the the funding of new improved infrastructure, but bias also exists in terms of which infrastructure is maintained out there is put in place. I wouldn't want people to walk away with this thinking, though, that infrastructure alone solves the issue of arrested mobility. See, there exists a social political atmosphere that we have to be mindful of. There are many places throughout this country where you have adequate infrastructure and yet you still have black people's mobility arrested. Again, arrested mobility is about tracking the ways in which black bodies are arrested, whether they have quality infrastructure or not. So that alone is not the solution, but that is part of the solution because what it could lead to hopefully is a reduction in pretextual stops that can manifest due to a lack of safe and quality infrastructure in communities.
0: So thank you for, for kind of helping me understand the bridging between there's the infrastructure connection but then there's the also the enforcement and the way that we enforce laws. Give me some examples of some of the most detrimental laws that impede on people of color's ability to access transportation and mobility.
2: Right, so I talked about zoning, there's land use, In addition to that, I I mentioned jaywalking. I mentioned bicycle, let's focus on bicycle registration, bicycle license requirements. There's, in many cities, laws that state you cannot bicycle on sidewalks, even though there isn't sufficient protected bicycle lanes on streets. There are loitering laws throughout the country, which historically were targeted towards uh, Black, Brown, and low-income individuals. Those are just some of the many policies, and it would take a while to just go through the entire list, but those are are some of the few that I would mention for now.
0: You mentioned jaywalking. Recently, the California legislature passed a bill to address the issue of fines for jaywalking. The governor did not sign it. Let's get right into jaywalking. (laughs) How does jaywalking disproportionately affect people of color? Jaywalking laws and fines.
2: Well, just like many of these laws that arrest the mobility of Black and brown people, They're used as a pretext to stop people, to search them. And unfortunately, this could escalate into a very violent encounter between enforcement and people of color, particularly Black males, whom are stopped disproportionate to other populations. And so this is not just an issue in California, but also one in Virginia, where you saw the Virginia Virginia actually passed a law to decriminalize jaywalking. You also see it on on a municipal level as in the case in Kansas City, Missouri, where they, too, uh, decriminalized jaywalking. And this was done because I know in Kansas City they had evidence to show that this law was being was impacting Black people disproportionately, and it was disproportionately Black males.
0: Charles, I'm going to throw it to my co-host, Dr. Audrey Jordan from Claremont Lincoln. Audrey, what you got?
1: Charles, this is just, what you're talking about is so far-reaching. We haven't spoken particularly about this, but just this morning, I saw an article in the New York Times about the incredible disproportionality of how police stop and pull over folks in their cars for misdemeanors. And so I'm I'm guessing this is also a part of what you're talking about in terms of arrested mobility, given that you said policing is a part of the three Ps. Can you tell me a little bit about Just your comments about that phenomenon.
2: Yes. So when I radically redefine policing, I stated that arrest and mobility is evident via three distinct forms. Policy, you can tie with that planning. There's policing. And then there is the self-deputization of white citizens, which is polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y. And so when you look at arrest and mobility in the context of physical mobility, it is most evident not just in driving, but you see a rest of mobility across all the different modalities, whether one is walking, biking, driving, taking public or private transit, hopping a ride via a ride share, or using a micro mobility device such as an e-scooter. So absolutely, you see it present in driving as well. But I wanted to distinguish between just the policing that happens via law enforcement and also share with you policy. And then lastly, polity, which is the self-deputization of white citizens or the quote unquote Cairns, because these two entities, the aggregation of these P's work together to limit the physical mobility of black people across all modalities.
1: You know, this next question, Charles, runs the gamut in terms of community engagement and community involvement on this issue. On the one hand, we see what happened in Minneapolis with folks voting down the idea of defunding the police and of the charge that it's those crazy left-wing radicals who labeled this defunding the police who spoiled everything. Then on the other side of the spectrum, I was just engaging with a student at COU yesterday and her difficulty in engaging her constituents in conversations that would help advocate for changing pedestrian regulations so that the sidewalks and areas in her town are safer for residents who live in her, but she just can't seem to get the residents engaged. So I I just wanted to kind of pull those two pieces together to ask you about the pluses and minuses, the perils and and successes of community engagement around this topic? I think we've yet to see in America
2: true and authentic public outreach and engagement. Uh, What we see is simply a formality. Many of the efforts we see at at a state or a local level that are deemed as best practice around community outreach and engagement. Is simply a formality, it's a check the box. You don't have true representation by the communities that have been most traumatized, victimized and killed or assaulted by these practices. Why? Because there's a mistrust and a distrust for government. And so they're not showing up in large numbers to be part of these processes because historically, they have not seen the fruits of their labor as it relates to showing up. So many of these studies, many of these polls I distrust because I know the people distrust them. And so I'm not surprised to see that the people voted to voted down this idea of defunding the police. The question is, why do we allow everyone to participate in a process that not all have been negatively impacted by? You know, it should have been a question just of the people that have been most victimized by law enforcement to see what they think. I get that, you know, we operate, we live in a society as a whole. And, you know, policing is funded primarily through tax dollars and people pay taxes. So everyone should have a voice. But as it relates to this particular matter, let's not act like all experiences are equal.
0: Charles, we have seen the political landscape around some of the topics that you're describing now. There have been swings. I noticed that politically, pendulum swings. They go back and forth. In the summer of 2020, there was a lot of reckoning. There was a lot of asking, what do we do about this problem? And it reached a point where non-African Americans were asking about allyship. How can I help? What can I do? But still, change is slow to come because political institutions are meant to help maintain status quo. They, They were designed that way. What are some things in policy that localities, counties, states, cities can do to address the issue of engagement of disenfranchised people?
2: Yeah, so I I don't think change is slow to come. I I think that change is slow to come for Black people and other people of color in this country. Um, I think change happens quite swiftly for the privileged few in this country. So I don't think, and I want to challenge all of us on that notion that change is slow to come. That has only been true for a certain population. As it relates to outreach and engagement, one of the things that municipalities could do is number one, ensure that it has a staff that represents the group of whom they're trying to engage. Number two, they need to ensure that the consultants of whom they're paying to engage with these communities represent these communities demographically as well. Number three, if you are to pay a consultant to ask a question of a population and that population has the answer to that question, the consultant is not the expert the community is. So therefore they should be paying the community to participate in the same processes that they're paying the consultant. Number four, it's disingenuous to expect the people of whom have been traumatized and victimized to show up to your place of gathering. You should meet them on their own terms, on their own times, and in their own language. And then lastly, I would say this importance of culture and respecting culture and and access for persons with disabilities and many, many others. I can go ad nauseum in in terms of the number of policies that should manifest to ensure a more equitable process, but those are just a few.
0: Charles, when you started, when you started the conversation about this, where we were first introduced, it was already 2020 and the pandemic had already come about and was in full swing when we first met on zoom. Can you please tell me what you have seen, what you have noticed, the issue of arrested mobility, how has COVID impacted that? Has it made it worse Has it made it more easy to identify? Has it highlighted that issue with a big spotlight? What has been the impact of the pandemic in communities of color on the topic of arrested mobility?
2: There have been many horrific things that have taken place during the pandemic. Personally, I've lost a number of family members, as well as friends and former classmates. And outside of my own family, there's just been death upon death upon death regardless of race ethnicity or income in this country and for all those people my my thoughts and prayers are with them the victims of their families the plus side of the pandemic has been the fact that we have now have to pay closer attention to social issues or societal issues what we've noticed is that even though there's been less traffic there's been more black death on our roadways A disproportionate share of traffic fatalities are by Black and Brown people, specifically Black Americans and Native Americans. And so, this idea that roadways are getting safer, once again, that is only true for some. That is not true for those who were harmed prior to COVID and now while we're in COVID, because we're not in a post COVID phase. So, it's still the same people, Black and Brown people. But we've also seen among the young professionals this sort of reckoning. They're starting to see how black and brown people are treated unfairly and unjustly. And I think we're starting to see their love, their appreciation and their respect for the groups that were their classmates just a month ago. I think they're marching now to bring about more awareness more justice. And that has been the upside of all of this and the fact that we're talking about
0: it now. Thank you. Go for it, Audrey. What you got?
1: Listen to you talk so eloquently about if you're serious about engaging community. And it struck me that part of what you're talking about, if you can confirm for me, is organizing power and voice of people in community. And so When I look at your services at Equitable Cities, I see it's a full court press. I just wanted you to speak to this challenge of organizing the power so that change can happen more swiftly.
2: Yeah, you know, power is something that doesn't get talked about. See, I'm not here to play games. You know, there are lives that are at risk. I represent, I'm a black male. I represent a demographic that is constantly targeted. And so for me, when we do this planning work, We need to put people at the center of the work that we're doing. Too often we talk about places, we talk about policy, but why do we have those things? We have those things for people. And so I am past tired of processes that only wanna look at the economic bottom line, that only wanna look at the best practice simply just from Europe as if the rest of the world doesn't exist. This is about all people. And in this particular case, the people that have been suffering most are black, brown, and low-income people. So if your process doesn't start with them, you're just perpetuating the status quo. And what it means to perpetuate the status quo is to perpetuate structural racism in this country. And that's just simply something that I'm not a part of, and I will never sign up for. And so that's why I do this work. That's why I'm the president of my own company, to ensure that no matter where we go throughout the world, we're putting people first. And because I do that, I sleep well at night.
0: Charles, thank you for that. I'm just wondering for people who are listening to this and they participate in their local politics, tell me some things that they can do to address this issue head on at a policy level. You talked about some of the things that give rise to arrested mobility. What does this look like to operationalize for somebody who wants to advocate in their town?
2: Yeah, so it looks different according to your, your place in society. I think we all, at a minimum, can advocate for more equitable and inclusive policies for Black, brown, people of color, women, persons with disabilities, seniors, and children. That's the foundation of it. Beyond that, we need to write more opt-eds. We need to share our opinions in local national newspapers so that people can see hey, beyond the experts, I care too. I think we need to run for office at the multiple levels so we can ensure that there are people who are knowledgeable about planning, about policy, knows the ways in which it can change things to be more equitable and inclusive, but also the sort of adverse impacts that it can have socially, politically, economic, environmentally, and health-wise if we don't do so. And then lastly, if you have money, If you have resources, if you have time, share that with those that do not have those things so that you can put them in a position to express the fullness of their humanity so that we can see the change that we want to see.
1: Amen and hallelujah.
0: (laughs) Charles, that was a fantastic rundown of the topics that you are working on. I am so glad that we were able to connect your body of work with the universe of my listeners who probably are listening to this and maybe have thought some of these things before, but it has never been laid out so succinctly in the way that you just did right now. So for those listening at home, Charles Brown, Equitable Cities, Rutgers professor,
2: where can people find you? Before I go to where people can find me, I'm starting the Arrested Mobility Research Collaborative. This research collaborative is going to take a rigorous look at state and local policies such as bicycle license bicycle registration sidewalk riding jaywalking playing in the street for instance as children we're going to do a rigorous analysis of the policies that currently exist on books that criminalize the mobility of black and brown people and we're going to ask that these policies be decriminalized and so if you are a researcher you're an advocate you are a planner an engineer or simply someone who wants to volunteer efforts to map out these policies across the US, contact me by email at CharlesBrown at equitablecities.com. Follow me on Twitter and on LinkedIn at CTBrown1911. And if anyone is wondering what the 1911 means, I'm a member of Kappa Apple Fraternity Incorporated.
0: Love it. Charles, it has been privilege to hear you discuss these topics. My life is fuller because I get to hear you share this with me. So thank you so much for being with us today, to discuss this topic, and we look forward to talking again soon. Thank you again, Charles. Thank you. Wow, everybody. I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview with Charles Brown as much as I did. Audrey, what is your big takeaway from that interview today?
1: So much, Jid. I am so excited about the things that Charles Brown shared with us. He made himself so accessible. I encourage people to go to the website for Equitable Cities to look at the various aspects of the work. But the thing that got me was how serious and focused, even though the fierce urgency of now is clear in what... Charles Brown's talking about, and he's not just talking, he's doing.
0: That's right. You know, when I listen to all of the layers of what he unwrapped for us today, nothing stands out to me more than his comment that change is not always slow. It's slow for disenfranchised communities. Yes, it's slow for the powerless, for people of color. Yeah, it's slow for people in power for people who are empowered, change is rather swift. So we have to throw away in the trash that notion that change is slow. No, it's not. If you're powerful and you're connected, change is rapid, swift, and it's exactly what you want when you want it.
1: Yes, and corollary to that, if you're serious and you're not just checking the box like so many are, you know how and you will engage community authentically with respect and with power. And wow, just so much there for folks to learn from. And I encourage you to check it out.
0: To everybody who joined us today, thank you for being with us for this outstanding conversation with my main man, Charles Brown, talking about arrested mobility. We will see you next time on the JetCast.